Well, hello and welcome to a bonus episode of 15-Minute Theology. My name is Tyler Burton, and ordinarily, uh, this is a podcast covering the central truths of the Christian faith in 15 minutes ish. But today we are doing something very different. On this bonus episode, we are actually going to be aiming for a little bit longer than the typical time period of 15 minutes. Uh, During the normal season, we'll cover high doctrines in a short amount of time to make it where it is accessible and comprehensive at the same time. But for a bonus episode in between season one and season two, I really want to get a chance to have a longer form conversation on what on earth does our theology have to do with how we live? Uh, and to help me have a conversation around these lines is somebody who is incredibly passionate about both theology, how doctrine plays itself out, and ethics, how we live. Uh, so joining me in this way more than 15-minute theology episode is Bradford Littlejohn. Brad, welcome. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. Uh, I've been following your work for quite some time, so really excited to have you on for this. Yeah, our pleasure. Awesome. Well, let, let's do this. Before we hop into our content, we got a little time. You know, we can we can lay back, relax. We don't have to feel like we're under the clock. Can can you give us a, a brief introduction to who you are? Give us a little bit about Brad, besides the most theologian sounding theologian name I've ever heard, which is Bradford Littlejohn. That's pretty fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, originally W W Bradford Littlejohn was my authorial name for a while, and I finally decided it was a little too pretentious, so just went with Bradford, and sometimes just Brad now, but. Um, pretty, pretty excellent. Nonetheless, man, you got yeah. set up for a win. Well, thanks. So, uh, yeah, I, um, I live in upstate South Carolina. I, this is where I grew up. Um, I moved away to college and came back 17 years later and live in the house that my parents built. So it's pretty cool. No way. Um, yeah. So, um, I got passionate about theology actually here on this property. My dad hired a local Greenville Seminary student uh, to do landscaping work on our property, and he figured it was good for me to uh, get you know get off my ass, stop reading books all the time, and 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 do some sweating. So uh, I went out and helped this seminary student uh, around the property, and in the process, we we talked about talked about theology questions, which I had, I'd read a little bit of theology. I was mostly a history buff, and I was planning to planning to become a history professor one day. But uh, through those years of kind of being informally mentored while, uh, you know, clearing, clearing trails, um, I got more and more passionate about theology and uh, ended up pursuing a PhD in theological ethics at the University of Edinburgh, which I completed in 2013. But I was very frustrated by the disconnect between a lot of academic theological study and the life of the church. And um, so I was kind of, as I was wrapping that up, I was looking for other opportunities besides the usual, um, the usual academic job market, which was a terrible job market anyway. Uh, so I ended up starting my own organization, the Davenant Institute, 10 years ago, 10 years ago this weekend, actually. So I don't know when this episode is being released, but September 9th is our 10th anniversary. So we're doing a oh, little anniversary amazing. party in, in D.C. But um, yeah, so we started that. I started that ten years ago uh, in order to really build a bridge between the academy and the church, um, helping make the really important retrieval work that was being done in Protestant theology available to a much broader swath of pastors and Christian leaders. 
So, yeah. And that's what I've been doing uh, part-time until 20, part-time until a year and a half ago, um, or at least officially part-time. I may have had two full-time jobs <laughs> part of the time. But that's how it goes anyway, sometimes. officially, officially full-time president of Davenant for the last uh, year and a half now. So, Come on. Well, congratulations. That's a big deal. Um, and then I really love that your story of theological education really roots itself in discipleship. Uh, it's this house you're currently in, your father and mother built, and that's part of your discipleship under their love and tutelage. Yep. And then also a seminary student coming along and just informally mentoring you, bringing you along. And that just kind of was the Lord's providence and carrying you forward. What a, what a remarkable example yeah. of God's care to, you, care to you in that. It's amazing. And that's part of what we, we try to like carry that on here at Davenant House, um, which is here on the on the property. So when we have students come uh, for their discipleship weeks or for our intensive summer programs, that going out and working on the garden together um, is and talking theology while we work with our hands is a, a key part of the program. So, yeah, I love that. That's really amazing. Um, very Bonhoeffer esque uh, in yeah. the, the seminary style. That's incredible. Um, so if you're listening and you're looking for, uh, formal, informal, uh, I've taken classes through Davenant Institute. They do some really great stuff. Uh, so excited to have you on, on Brad, 10th anniversary, 10th anniversary. That's really encouraging, man. That's great stuff. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's kind of take a second and, and turn then into this passion you have for theology ethics, the church and discipleship into a brief conversation for today. One thing I love about your story is that the entirety of your ministry now, your family life, your discipleship to Jesus is really reflecting how uh, not only has Jesus shaped your heart, but shaped the entirety of your life. Your doctrine then is kind of carrying itself out in the things you're doing in the way you're living. So it, you were the one who, when we were talking about this, you said, actually, I think I could really talk on this interplay between theology and ethics. So I'm curious for, for you in particular, what is it that interests you about not just talking about the, the beautiful doctrines, but how does this beautiful doctrine actually play out in how we live? Yeah. Well, I think because we are image bearers of God, um, we will be living out our theology, whether we realize it or not. We will always be trying to bear the image of whatever we think God is. Yeah. Um, if, we, if we truly know and love the Creator God, then we will find ourselves seeking to conform more and more to His image, to live in a way that it reflects that. Uh, yeah. If we're worshiping some idol, we're going to structure our lives around obedience to that idol. We're going to look more and more like that thing that we idolize. Uh, so I think there's this, um, there's all, there's going to be this, this coherence between them. Our beliefs are going to play themselves out in our actions. Mm. Uh, but I think it's, it's more complicated than that, of course, because, um, and this is, I think what makes it so interesting is that we can believe something in our, our, our beliefs we can have beliefs on many different levels of, of consciousness, right? And so we can believe something in theory that hasn't really come to the center of our being. Um, uh -huh. So we can have a good theology up here that hasn't really uh, taken its seat in our heart. Yeah. Uh, and then, therefore, we might be living in a way that doesn't reflect those beliefs. Um, uh, so that can be, you know, you can, you can have good beliefs and still have bad actions, but it can also go the other way. I think this is, um, you know, where uh, Paul talks about Romans 2, about God's law being written 
on our hearts, even on the hearts of the, the Gentiles, where even those who have a false theology, who are worshiping false gods, uh, there is still sort of buried deep beneath that an awareness of who the true God is. Um, hmm. Paul talks about Romans 1, right? Um, although right. They, they, they knew God, right? They suppressed that truth, but they knew God. And so that deeply buried belief um, and the reality that God, as he impresses himself in the created order, right? He's made himself known through the things that were made, as it says in Romans 1. Mm -hmm. That means that even the person who has a false God nonetheless has some awareness of the true God underneath, which means that um, their ethics may not be their ethics may not be as bad as their theology, right? They might in some ways, ah, yeah. uh, you, can, you right. can have good theology and not fully live it out, or you can have really bad theology and thankfully not fully live it out. Hmm. And so there's always going to be, um, the, you know, they're, they're kind of, the more thoughtfully you live your life, the closer they're going to come together. Um, and yet there's always going to be these interesting tensions and inconsistencies. Yeah. It's, I think you helpfully also pointed out some of the um, kind of roots of unbelief that happen in the heart. Um, in reality, when we're running into spaces where our ethics and our theology aren't in line, what's happening is there's a, there might be a false worship happening, um, or there might be a false understanding of how worship is to play itself out. Uh, and that can not only happen in us, but I think also help us in our conversations with friends who don't believe in the gospel as well. Um, they might say, oh, of course I believe in Jesus. But then when you press on that little idol, right, when you press on that idol of the thing they're actually worshiping, it shows itself, it reveals itself to not be the case. Um, right. Yeah, it's really helpful. Right. That's really helpful. So then, all right, here's the thing. I took ethics, I took ethics in college and I took ethics in seminary. And I think one of the first things that was the difference between the ethics I took in college and the ethics I took in seminary is in college, it was all uh, mostly political, right? It was, here's, here's the political decisions we're making. Here's kind of the ways a society and culture can make ethical decisions. And there's not really a thoughtful life sitting behind it. Going into the theological ethics, it's a very different way of understanding it. So could you just define ethics for us? I know that's kind of a simple question with probably a long answer. Uh, what would you say ethics is then? Yeah, well, I would say the most basic definition is just ethics is the study of how to live well. Huh. Um, and I think that that has both an external and an internal dimension. I think most people would grant that there's both an external and an internal dimension, right? It can't be, um, ethics has to be more than just good intentions. It has to be more than just good feelings, good thoughts. Uh, it has to actually be you know, living that out in some kind of yeah. visible way. Uh, and yet it can't just be external either. And that's why I think, you know, you might have that tension where studying in a more secular environment, ethics is going, the emphasis is going to be on, on the things that you do outwardly, making, making the world a better place. Uh, but even within a secular ethics, there generally be recognition that intention does matter. Um, if you were mm. making, it might, you know, they might, the goal might be just making the world a better place, but it's better if you're making the world a better place because you actually love other people as opposed to, you know, you're trying to get, yeah. you know, most people recognize if you're serving other people just to get praise for yourself. There's something wrong with that. So we understand that there's both this external. It's also and Romans dimension. one, like you were talking about playing itself out, right? Like yeah. even in our 
pursuit of things away from God, there's a sense in us that recognizes the law of God as we're playing itself out, right? Yeah, that right. makes perfect sense. Yeah. I think from a Christian standpoint, that internal dimension is is foregrounded. Um, that there's the recognition. Um, I mean, Augustine famously says there can't be any true justice. Uh, it, so justice is giving to each what is due to them. So there can't be any true justice unless you're giving God what is his due. And hmm. therefore, um, all goods that you pursue must ultimately be pursued for the sake of God. Because yeah. he, is the, he is the greatest good. And so if you're pursuing good for any other reason, in some sense, you are pursuing evil. Uh, so having that heart uh, relationship yeah. right with God is going to be at the root of any truly good ethical action from a theological standpoint. It's, it's helpful. It sees ethics as linked to worship. Right, I am either right. doing this out of love, adoration, and worship of God, or I am doing it out of love for self, love for others, and ultimately, then would it be sin? Right. So, ethics then is is not just the action; uh, it is the the whole life and heart that goes then into the action, um, which I think is where theology uniquely plays itself in. Uh, mm -hmm. That theology is not a separated doctrine. We're actually dealing with what do I believe about God and His world, uh, and what He has done in His Son. Um, so then if you could say there is one particular way in which the study of God shapes our ethics, can actually shape what it means to follow Jesus faithfully, what is one way you would say that's possible? Yeah, well, I would start with, um, you know, what I already said in terms of uh, that we, that the fact that we bear God's image is going to be very determinative then uh, for how we view our ethical lives, right? So we are seeking to image God. What God, what is this God? What is he like? Uh, and therefore, what are we supposed to be like? Well, you know, if you have the idea of the Greek gods, that they're just kind of really powerful beings going around chasing their own passions and seeking their own glory, then you're going to think that we too are supposed to aspire to be like that. This is the, this is the uh, world yeah. of... Yeah. The Iliad and the Odyssey is the, the heroes seeking to—the line between humans and gods is very blurry, right? Some humans are descended from gods. Some humans become gods. There's this idea that human beings do image the gods that they worship, and the gods that they worship are concerned with their own power and glory and pleasure, and that's what the Greek heroes are, are seeking to do. And it's not—it's interesting that it's, like, it's not immoral in that world for Achilles to, uh, my son's just been reading the Iliad, so this is very much on my mind. Right? So, you know, a Achilles is basically sacrificing the interest of the rest of the Greeks to ensure that he gains as much glory as possible. Uh, and that just seems like obviously unethical to us. It's not unethical in their world because he's imaging their exactly gods. What the gods right? do. Yeah. 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 Um, if, if you go, you know, okay, so that's a very crude idea of God. Um, but even if we go a little... Beyond that, as long as we have this, unless, as long as we don't have an idea of God as being infinite, an infinite creator um, upon which all creation is dependent, if we don't have that idea, then we're going to see God as realizing himself, as achieving his, his godness in struggle, in a, in a kind of violent struggle against that which is not God. And this is yeah. the view, and yeah, most pagan religions have this idea of, you know, there, there might be good gods yeah. and bad gods, and the good, the good gods Eastern are Eastern mysticism, having... right, yeah, yeah. Right, there's, all, there's conflict is basic to reality. Struggle, conflict, violence, overcoming through strength and violence. 
And so if that's who your God is, then that's what your ethic is going to be. It's going to be like the Norse, um, uh, think about uh -huh. the, the kind of the, the Norse worldview, right? Um, now, okay, you don't want a God like that. So you want a God who is indeed an infinite God uh, who is on which all creation is, comes from him, is dependent upon him. But still, um, there's going to be differences between, say, the God of Islam and the God of Christianity. Because the God of Islam is an infinite creator God, but he is not law-bound in his actions. So what you need is a God who is infinite vis-a-vis -vis creation, and yet um, he, 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 he limits his own infinity, right? He limits himself to, to act in a law-bound fashion, right? So the, um, the God of Islam is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He can, just, he can command human beings to do whatever he wants them to do, and he can change his commands whenever he wants. And terrifying, so it's a, he's an absolute way. dictator. What? Terrifying. That's a terrifying reality. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's no and consistency. This, and of there. course, this creates a political theology. The political theology of Islam is one of, uh, and most why do most Muslim countries have dictators? Well, because the God of Islam is a dictator. The That's idea a of a ruler point. limiting himself by law is not in their theology, and so it's not in their politics. But yeah. Christian theology has an absolute, infinite God who nonetheless limits himself to act in a law-bound fashion. And therefore, hmm. he creates a model for human beings, his image bearers, acting in that way. Yeah. How, how would you say this even goes to the modern secular gods, right? They, they aren't necessarily the, the gods that uh, the Greeks worshipped and the, 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 the Muslim worships, but they very much are secular atheistic gods, right? How, how would you say that it kind of runs afoul of the, the atheistic materialist system as well? Well, I would say what we're dealing with right now is um, – so I think the key things are to, to affirm are man is made in God's image, um, and yet there's an absolute creator-creature distinction. So man is made in God's image, but man is very much not God, right? Man is bound and limited in ways that God is not. If you, if you don't affirm that, then you're going to take the idea that man is made in God's image and you're going to try to make man himself into God, God yeah. right? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's probably where we're at most of all now, I think because a lot of it has to do with technology, it seems to me. We, by means of our technologies, we've been able to master nature more and more and more. And then it's, it's easy to delude ourselves into thinking, wow, this, like, we can make this world into whatever we want it to be. We are we are effectively gods. This is this mm. creation is it's not God's creation. It's our creation. We can recreate it at will, and then eventually, and then we can even turn on ourselves and recreate our own human nature to be whatever we want it to be. Right. This is, I think, what you see in the kind of transgenderism movement is this denying denying the limits of createdness mm. and trying to ourselves be infinite creative beings that. Just, you know, for God to, God can imagine something and just do it, right? And we, mm. we're trying to get to that point. If we can just, uh, uh, we just need to think it up and then technologically we can make it happen. So I would say that's where, um, that's where our idolatry really is coming in. The form that it takes for us now is it's very much, I mean, in some sense, every form of idolatry is a form of worship of self, but I think that's much more explicit Today. in our current age.
Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. And it, it's striking to me how similar that result actually kind of is to the to the pagan god result. Because in the pagan god result, you're right, they're imaging the gods and therefore their actions that we would say are morally reprehensible uh, are in line with the system. And it's not it's not reprehensible. It's fine. Um, I think it's interesting that in the, the pagan culture we kind of have today, the secular pluralist pagan culture there is a sense in which if someone is doing something that's defying me and my ethical system as the center of reality there there is a uh, an ability to override them in order to have what i think is rightly mine um so because i'm the center then the ethical system is based entirely on me as right. the center someone in the way of that then is in the wrong the 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 evil then is not allowing self-actualization and self-fulfillment. Right. Um, and so I can do that at the expense of the other, um, which is, which well, is yeah, crazy. I mean, it's, it, it's a new polytheism, right? So to yeah. like monothe, like why is monotheism important? Because it, monotheism ensures an actual shared ethical system. There oh, is so one universal set of moral norms because there's one transcendent divine being. If there are multiple divine beings that are all kind of equally ultimate, then there are multiple competing moralities and that's that's the case in the ancient pagan world and that's the case for us now in the modern world yeah uh, yeah yeah that's crazy and the the competing morality is my next door neighbor um which yep. is just is crazy um super helpful super clear uh so then thinking on christian doctrine uh the the fundamental truths of what it means to follow jesus uh are there some doctrines in in following jesus that we might not realize have an effect on our ethics, but slowly over time we can see that they do. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a significant one that people may not think about that much is eschatology. Um, a lot of us, you know, I think prefer to sort of not to talk about eschatology. I mean, maybe people people fall into two camps. Either they talk way too much about eschatology, <laughs> that's all they talk about, or they don't want to talk about it at all. Right, uh, and I think I think it's important to have a, a sort of a healthy um, a healthy agnosticism about a lot of uh, eschatology that uh, we don't know the day or hour, and, and it's and it's unhealthy to speculate too much. Um, but I don't think we should totally ignore it because I think it does have important ramifications, and I think we've seen that in the last um, in American evangelicalism. So, Certainly. if you think if you think that um, if your theology says uh Jesus, for things are things are getting worse and worse the antichrist is going to take over and Jesus is going to come back really soon and rescue us out of the domain of the antichrist well then um what's the point of founding i mean why would you even waste time founding a christian university for instance right um the sure. only thing that really makes sense to do is to focus on evangelism save as many souls as you can because Jesus come back in 5 maybe 10 years and save a few more souls before he comes back. Uh, whereas if you have an eschatology that has a longer time horizon and has more optimism about the extent to which Christ's kingdom will be made manifest on earth in, certain, uh, in a kind of um, preliminary way before he comes to reign in, in, in person, if you have that eschatology, then there's much more of a motivation to invest right. in intergenerational uh, building of Christian families, Christian institutions, Christian societies. Um, and so I think, uh, and yet there's a temptation, of course, 
if you have too grandiose an eschatological vision, too much of a vision of how much uh, Christ's kingdom can be accomplished before he returns, then there's the danger of thinking, you know, if we, we just need to, if we build this Christian society, then that's going to be Christ's kingdom on earth, right? So I think there's this healthy balancing act where you have to have a certain, you have to have an optimism um, about the directionality of uh, Christ's kingdom within this age, and yet a recognition of the limits between limits of what we as humans can accomplish. Um, yeah. And in any case, whatever view you take of, of those eschatologies, it is going to inform a rather different set of ethical priorities. Yeah. Do Do you think there's wisdom then in um, holding loosely to something uh, to an eschatological system? I mean, I think that. I would probably hold to, I had a professor one day who said that Monday through th- through Thursday, he's Amil, and then Friday through Sunday, he's Postmill. And I really <laughs> appreciated that because he he recognized the level of agnosticism you have to have. Yep. There is some mystery here, but he also very much held to pieces of it uh, and, and really saw the interplay between the belief there and how he, he carried out his world. Um, so... Thoughts on that? Thoughts on kind of holding, holding maybe yeah. a little open-handed to some of these? I think I think that's true. I think you should hold it fairly loosely, and then that, in fact, enables you to focus on the full range of Christian duties that we're called to. Um, if you have, if you have, if you get really confident in a particular eschatology, whether it's pessimistic or optimistic, and you think you you know you know the answers. Then on that basis, you can prioritize, right? You can say, like, okay, I know, you know, I know that Jesus is coming back in just ten years or so. So now, on the basis of that knowledge, I can prioritize within the New Testament commands and say, okay, that right. one's not very important. That one's not very important. This one is very important. Right. Yeah. Um, Build the bunker, write the gospel track, and go from there. Right. Yeah. 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 So whereas if if you hold it loosely, then you can zoom out a little bit and look at the whole picture and focus on evangelism and kingdom building. So. Yeah. And then you can hold tightly to what we can affirm in that Jesus is going to return. Uh, and because he is going to return, there's a confidence, there's a rest, there's a help, there's a um, there's a hopefulness, right? There's a theological optimism. The grave is empty. He's going to return. Uh, and yet, like you're saying, a level of uh, humility. Uh, I've, I, I don't know how this is going to happen. And then we can kind of sit in both of those spaces. Yeah. Super helpful. Um, so then I, I have a I have a question along those lines, um, but it kind of comes back to what you said closer to the beginning of one of the things that inter- interests you the most about uh, this play between theology and ethics is that sometimes they don't align. Uh, sometimes I might have a, a very strong belief, a very strong system that I hold to that doesn't actually play itself out in how I live, or like you mentioned. I might be living a particular way uh, and disagreeing with a uh, set of assumptions that go underneath that living, but then in my head holds something very different. So then uh, when that happens, because I think inevitably as a fallen creature, that's going to happen where we notice that there is some level of inconsistency between what I say that I believe what I believe and how I live. How then do we deal with this? Um, 
And I'm asking because I think on one end, we can be legalists. We can uh, zero in on the uh, the duty of it. We can notice the failure. We can become scrupulous almost uh, and just kind of constantly being overwhelmed at our deficiencies here. Um, or on the other end, we can maybe become antinomian and say, yeah, it doesn't really matter how much I live here. It just really matters what I believe. Um, or, or we can just kind of do some mishmash of all of it. So when we notice these things, uh, what does it look like to actually correct the inconsistency and do so to put how we live and what we believe back into a harmonious alignment? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the short answer is it depends. It depends on what the nature of the, I love that. You know, what nature <laughs> of disharmony is. Um, because as I said, sometimes, uh, sometimes people are in fact living their conduct is wiser than their beliefs, right? Um, this, yeah. you can, they can hold really bad beliefs and yet, in fact, you know, live quite decent lives because the natural law in, in impressing itself on their conscience is um, guiding them more truly than their official beliefs are. So I would say, um, I mean, I think the first, but for, you know, for us as Christians, I would say when you recognize that discrepancy between belief and action. Um, and I, when I say, when you recognize it, it's like, it should be something you should be constantly attentive to. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, this, this is sort of like a, a daily discipline of examining yourself um, and not, not in a, not in a, you know, an unhealthy uh, sort of paralyzing introspection, yeah. but just in not a, navel gazing. Yeah, how you know, I, I I want to serve God as well as I can today. I know that my sin nature is going to be keep keep me from doing that. What are what are some ways in which I have you know sort of habitually am failing to do that which I say that I, I want to do? Um, yeah. But when we notice these dis, dissonances between our beliefs and conduct, um, I mean, the first thing to say is, as I say, it, it can go either way. That um, it it probably Probably you want to reform your conduct to match your beliefs, but possibly you need to reform your beliefs to match your conduct. Because again, sometimes, mm -hmm. um, sometimes you're, you know, what do I want to say? Like sometimes your heart knows better than your head, right? Um, sometimes there's there's a kind of a, a a sanctified common sense that is better than your. Uh, official theology and if you find yourself um so particularly i think you know you can if you if you've adopted a very kind of rigorous legalistic theology uh and then you keep you're like oh i just keep falling short you know i'm just not um you know i'm not i'm not living as faithfully as i should maybe you're falling short or maybe you're actually living you are living faithfully and it's your theology that's overly scrupulous. And so, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. um, you know, and so, I mean, for instance, I mean, the, the people have different views on this, but you know, I think I would say, um, uh, like, what does it mean? What does it mean to keep the Sabbath in today's world? I think it's a really difficult question. Um, but I, and I think some, to some extent you should sort of, uh, not try to answer it in the abstract, but rather, try to cult you know just cultivate a healthy rhythm of life with your church with your family um around your um your work and that 
trying to sort of live in a way that's in tune with the rhythms of life that God has called you to um, may in fact be a more, sort of more reliable than something that you could kind of try to think through in, a, in an abstract way, right? So sometimes, um, so there's a disconnect between head and heart. Sometimes the heart actually knows better than the head. But yeah. um, I think maybe more often than not, it's going to be the other way around. If, 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 if by head we mean, you know, since we mean by head here, but if you're, you know, reading the scriptures and praying and, and, and uh, listening to what you're, you're, you're learning, you know, what you're, what's being preached on Sunday, and you're thinking about those things and recognizing your conduct keeps going a different direction. Um, there can be a temptation to say, well, I don't want to be inauthentic. I don't want to just be going through the motions. Um, and so therefore, you know, it's not, people would say it's, it's like, it's, um, if, if my habits aren't there, I shouldn't just force myself into living out these going, th going through the motions of these godly habits, just because sure. just to conform to, you know, what I believe is right. But I would say, um, you can, that, you know, that the expression fake it to make it is true, right? That you can, yeah. if you do recognize, um, you, you don't want to be a, a, a hypocrite just going through the motions, but if you do truly believe that, the, you know, this is how God wants you to live. So let's say, for instance, your prayer life, right? So um, this is a great example, right? So most of us probably have a, feel like we have a pretty abysmal prayer life. And I think there can be a temptation to be like, well, I don't want to be like formalistic about it. You know, prayer is supposed to be spontaneous and from the heart. And so if I'm just trying to like force myself into a prayer routine, then it's not really prayer, is it? Right? It's the real prayer has to just come bubble up from within. Uh, well, yeah, but sometimes you got to create um, you know, if you want, if you want water to come up out of the ground, you, you got to dig a well and put walls around it and then it'll let it bubble up. Right. So good. Uh, you don't just wait for it to bubble up on its own. And so I think that similarly, that's, that's what we should do with our prayer lives. We need to dig a well, um, and put, put bricks around it. Um, and keep, you know, if, if it gets filled with mud, we need to dig the mud out. And what, what I mean by that, that's making, structuring our lives with set aside times and set aside and have formal habits that we establish to make make room for prayer and initially it may be just kind of going through the motions um but yeah. as we do that as we go through those motions uh and wait upon the spirit then those motions will become real so yeah i think um the we have a lot to learn from the historic Christian tradition of, of speaking about the virtues and virtues are habits of soul in which it's not just a matter of, not just a matter of external action. And it's not just a matter of good internal desires. It's a matter of the kind of um, the, in, the constant interplay of those two feeding each other, letting mm. our desires shape our habits and letting those habits then shape our desires. Yeah. That's, I liked how you started with it depends and then fleshed out the pieces, fleshed out the different ways that could be dealt with. It's so, so incredibly helpful. And what I really appreciate was the, uh, you kind of spoke against the idea that just doing it, if you don't feel it is inauthentic. Um, because let's say you are in that place and you're somebody who, okay, I know I ought to be doing this, 
but I want to wait until I feel it. Actually, if you know you ought to be doing it and then you start living it out, that actually, that actually is authentic, right? That actually is genuine belief carrying itself forward. You might not quite want to quite yet, but you're, you're doing what you know is to be true. Um, and I also appreciate that you kind of defied the Selena Gomez logic of like the heart wants what it wants, right? You're not saying that, but you are saying uh, there is a sanctified common sense. Uh, this is uh, John and first John, right? Like um, he, he speaks louder than our hearts, right? His, uh, the cross actually speaks against our hearts when our hearts accuse us. There's a sense in which um, the data of the gospel and the sanctified common sense of the, of the gospel believed uh, gospel saved sinner can actually speak and correct to the incorrect things happening in the heart. And those two things happen simultaneously. Um, it sounds like you'd really emphasize that one of the things we can do to help most align our belief systems in our living is the spiritual practices, uh, is allowing these habits of life to begin to put all of these things together. Am I, am I on the right track there? Yeah. And I think, a lot of that, I mean, a lot of it needs to be done in community. And I think that's what, um, yeah. you know, evangelicals probably in general are particularly lacking in is we may have strong habits, relatively strong habits of individual Bible reading and devotion. Um, but uh, you mentioned, you know, Bonhoeffer at the beginning, and I've just recently read his, his life together. And uh, it, I mean, it's, he, it's, it's really great how he holds together both sides. I mean, the, the book's called Life Together, but there's a whole section about, uh, there's a chapter called The Day Alone, and then a chapter yeah. called The Day with Others. And it's, you need both, right? You need that um, time alone with God in order to be, in order to be filled up by Christ so that you can be Christ to your neighbor. Um, and yet you also are not meant to draw strength alone. You're supposed to draw strength from your neighbor who is being Christ to you. And so... Um, Establishing spiritual disciplines of life and community, which you know, for most of us, that means like our family community, um, minimally. But I think actually, it's we need. I mean, the Anglican tradition, uh, which is what I um, identify with. Um, I say identify with it. It's, you know, very modern language, uh, but it's true. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church, yeah. but I'm I'm more Anglican, probably in orientation. But um, you know, the it, within the church, the Anglican tradition, there's the rhythms of daily morning and evening prayer were established in the Reformation. And the idea was that the entire Christian community, which everybody would have lived, you know, within easy walking distance to the parish church, um, is coming together for those daily, uh, that those daily rhythms of worship. Now, I'm sure even at the heyday, it was only a small fraction of people did it. Um, but it still was. It wasn't just Sunday morning worship. It was daily and then there was at least some portion of the community gathering as community. And I think it would be healthy for us as American Christians. It's difficult to know how to do this in our age of the automobile and every, and people being so scattered about and having such busy lives. But the more we can form those spiritual disciplines within the rhythms of community, um, the better we're going to be. And that's where, yeah. you know, our theology needs to shape our ethics. Um, our, you know, the Christ redeems doesn't redeem individuals for himself. He redeems a people, the church. And um, we, I think, our our culture is a deeply individualistic culture, and that has formed our ethics in the church to an unhealthy degree. Hmm. And what a, what a countercultural witness to the modern culture when it is 
people life on life together in life together following jesus faithfully being shaped by him shaping one another uh that's the that creates a little bit of a, an, an attractiveness, right? It's the aroma mm-hmm. of Jesus where, where people see us and say, oh, I have to do something about this. Um, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, well, Brad, thank you. Uh, thanks for your time, your answers, your insights. Uh, I've been incredibly helped by this. I think one thing I'm taking away from this is uh, just the uh, intersection between belief, habit, and all of life and how, how really there is no way to bifurcate these. Uh, there's actually a, an entire entire uniformity in how I live, what I am, how I live, what I do. Uh, it's it's all linked together. So uh, thank you for that, just instructing me in that. Thanks for instructing us in this as well. Um, hey, where can we find you? Give yourself a little bit of an advertisement. Uh, it's a much longer episode than normal, so uh, you, you got a little bit more room here. Uh, if you could advertise yeah. yourself, where can we find you? Where can people uh, hear about your work? Uh, besides just coming and knocking on your door in South Carolina, what what else can folks do? Yeah. Well, I, I did have a personal website that was so out of date that I, I took it offline until I have time to update it. So maybe, um, you know, you can check whether bradlittlejohn.com works or not by the time this episode goes live. But hopefully, hopefully I can get that up to date and put all the, you know, links to all the different places I'm writing because I write for a gazillion different places. So it is hard to find one place. But in the meantime, uh, my Twitter, WB Little John, you can find, you know, I tweet out most things that I teach or speak or, or write. Um, I teach every term for our Davenant Hall uh, program, uh, uh, which, uh, so I'll be teaching um, topics related to this, this podcast, uh, natural law and scriptural authority this fall. And then in the um, January through March term, we do trimesters. Um, I'll be teaching Protestant moral theology. And then I teach um, Reformation in the Modern World in April through June. So, um, yeah, check out davenanthall.com if you want to take a course with me or any of our other great teachers. And, um, yeah, I hope to see some of you there. Come on. I love it. Yeah. I took the class on Owen's eschatology, uh, not too long ago. And it actually showed a lot of what you talked about, uh, about, uh, how Owen's eschatology through the years shaped his political theology, shaped his everyday theology, shaped his pastoral theology. It's really, really remarkable. So it was a great course. Hey, can't recommend Davenant highly enough. They're tremendous. So Brad, thank you for your time. Thanks for this. Uh, hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for joining us as well. And we will see you next time on a much shorter episode of 15 Minute Theology. Thanks for listening to 15 Minute Theology. If you're listening to us on the Apple Podcasts app, give us a five-star rating and drop a review. If you're listening on Spotify, give us a five-star review, a follow, and hit the notification bell to never miss a new episode. And give us a follow on all social media platforms at 15 Minute Theology. We'll see you next time.